Hello and welcome to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. On part two of this podcast with Fish, we start off in Berlin, where we left off last time. I did end up very naked in, 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 in Berlin. Uh, I remember I walked through a restaurant naked, right? It was in a, in a bet. We were all, Mark, we all went out with Chris Kimsey, the producer, one night to this Austrian kind of Tyrolean restaurant. We used to go up there on a Sunday because they had Tafelspitz, which was the closest we could get to roast beef, right? And we went up one night and we all got very, very drunk. And um, and we were drinking Drambuie or something. I can't remember what it was. And um, or Rusty Nails. And and Mark Kelly dared me to walk naked through the restaurant, right? So I went down to the toilet, stripped absolutely bottle naked, came out, walked up, sat at the table. Is everybody all right? Like, da, da, da. Paid me the money. And, da, da, da. and I remember I walked out the restaurant naked and I had to come back in again because I left my belt, right? And there was loads of waiters taking photographs of us. So like somewhere, there's, there's some waiters somewhere in, in, uh, in Berlin that have got photographs of me naked and arrested. They probably don't even know it's me. If you haven't listened to the first part of the podcast interview, I suggest you dive into that first. But if you have, stay tuned for matters much closer to home. Fish's last ever studio album, Velchmerz. And some brutal honesty about how he sees his life today. But first, let's go back to Berlin to Hansa Studios, where Meridian recorded Misplaced Childhood, the studios where Bowie recorded Heroes, and the city where Bowie went to after the cocaine indulgence of the recording of Station to Station, ostensibly to calm down from his drug intake. In Berlin, it was completely opposite for us. We went out there and like we didn't have any money. So it was like, you know, we, we weren't, you know, doing doing Bowie-esque kind of amounts of, of powder, right? But, you know, we, well, me especially, because, you know, Mark Kelly was married at the time. I think Steve Rothery was married by then. I mean, I, everybody was married apart from me, you know? So I was bouncing about, and then I met up with a load of punters. And, and then eventually, you know, to, at the end of the album, you know, when we were filming the video for Kelly, I met, you know, what was to become, you know, my first wife. So it was yeah. like, I so yeah, I've got a lot tomorrow. of powerful... Tamara was in that in that video, and there there is you know there is your most iconic song off the most iconic album, and the model in the video becomes your wife. Mm. I mean, it's quite it's quite an amazing story. It's almost like you know it's yeah. it's somehow a movie, isn't it? That is that is a movie in itself. That oh, doesn't yeah, happen. You don't, you're not even going to get the rest of the stories. It's like you know, buy the book for that lot. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was, yeah, that period was was incredible, and um, and yeah, and, and we did that album, but we, you know, we were still, we were still mentally in that eighty four position, you know, we were still a band that was still conquering America. I mean, I remember we were recognised in a McDonald's in the Kudam, right, and it was like, you know, somebody asked for a rograph and went, ah, oh, fish, and it was like, somebody's recognised us. We must be a big band, you know. And um, but then you know we came back, and then the album came out, and Kaylee came out, and then everything changed. And no matter what you think about how it's going to go, nothing prepares you or trains you for that onslaught, for that media onslaught, and that attention that comes at you, you know, on the back of an international hit single. You know, what was that onslaught then? What 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 do you exactly mean by that? Because you know, I, you can say it, and I can I can grasp it in terms of this is a big change. 
but I don't know what the intrusion is. I don't know what they're what they're trying to get out of you. How you? Well, can... everybody everybody wants to know who Kay was for a kickoff, and uh, which I refused to do. I never ever gave her identity away, you know. And it wasn't until she died. It, I mean, even she kept it quiet until she uh, she sadly died of cancer quite a few years ago. And in the last day, I actually met up with her. Yeah, she was married with kids and, and we met up and she'd never actually heard the full album. She came up to see her cousin in Edinburgh and we went out for lunch and she came back to the house and met my daughter and, and stuff and I gave her the album. And she, when I gave her the album, she said, she listened to it in the car on the way home and she said, I just cried the whole way. She said, I never realised that that was what, what you wrote about me. You know? and, um, but at the time in 85, everybody wanted to know who she was. And then you've got all these guys that, you know, Two years previously, had been writing you off as a Gabriel Soundalike and Amarillian crap. Everybody wanted to know us, you know. Everybody wanted to be around us, you know. And that, that was kind of hard to take, you know, going from being the band that was trying to get attention to suddenly having all the attention you ever wanted plus, you know. And it, it became quite intrusive. Um, I love the party elements of it all. I mean, you know, you got invites to places that you would never have invites to before. And, and I loved it for the first part. But then, but I think the band split up as well. And, you know, because I was doing nearly all the interviews, because I was doing most of the promotion work, you know, there was a kind of separation occurred between me and the band. You know, if somebody had to go to Japan and do promo, oh, well, fish is going out. We're staying at home. And I started to resent it a little bit, you know, the, the fact that, you know, I was having to do all this stuff and, it was, uh, and the gigs became bigger. They became more impersonal. I think, you know, as I said, the gang mentality started to fracture. And you know, John Arneson, I felt lost control. Um, there were far, far too many drugs around on all quarters of the band, right? And um, you know, I mean, some a couple of members were uh, were a lot less than others. But I mean, you know, it might not have been cocaine, but like you know. The alcohol rider at the back of gigs was immense. I mean, it was, you know, and, you know, it, it started to fall apart. And when we were on the road all the time and we didn't have time for ourselves. And I think, you know, that was it. It was like there was no spare time. There was no, you know, I didn't go away on holidays round about then, you know, nothing, you know. And it, yeah, it wasn't. And then when I got together with, you know, uh, Tamara, it was very difficult trying to keep that relationship together. And, and, and then we moved into Clutching at Straws, which was, you know, basically my resignation statement, which is still the album that I prefer out of all of the albums, you know. And, um, Do you think you were reduced at that point? Because I remember, um, you know, hearing about Fish, the lead singer of Marillion, and hearing you in terms of excess, of, you know, of drinking, of being really excessive. And... Um, in a I'll tell sense, you what, taking away what, from the music. Do you know what I mean? No, I don't. I think, I think you know, it was you know, it was at the time of you know, all bands. It was the nineteen eighties. I mean, excess was applauded, you know, and you know, EMI Brian Munns, who was my press officer at EMI, you know, he cautioned me. But it's the same with Keith Moon. I mean, the stories that went about about me at that time. You know, if I if I lived a life as the fiction was portrayed. I wouldn't be here talking to you, right? And it was the same with Keith Moon. He wasn't out of it all the time, you know? And it was, you know, and when I left the band, there were certain parties in whose interest it was to basically portray me as being 
out of control, a drug addict, an alcoholic, and that was why I left the band. That was what they wanted, rather than the real reasons, right? And they, they, were, they were offering £12,000 for a photograph of me out my face, like falling out of a car, or, and they couldn't get it. They couldn't find any photographs, right? And that explains it. And it was Carol Clark, the journalist at the Melody Maker, she was offered 12 grand for a photograph for me pissed. And she said, I don't have any of fish out of it, right? And, um, and that was the thing. It was like, it was, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of fiction in there, you know? I mean, you know, I'm, I still love, you know, I have a, a night off, but I don't do it every, you know, I mean, if I get plastered now, it takes me about two days, three days to recover. Right? Yeah, don't I know. And I, th- and I think, you know, when it was, you know, but back in those days, it was, you know, it was the 80s. It was mental. It was like cocaine was, you know, the drug of choice. It was everywhere. You know, you couldn't turn a corner without somebody offering you a, a gram of cocaine, you know. And it was, but I wasn't coked out my head all the time. I couldn't, I couldn't afford to be. We didn't earn that much money to have serious drug habits, you know. But, um, but yeah, but when Kaylee hit, it kind of, it threw a spotlight and, you know, as you said, you know, I was kind of propelled forward and had this kind of like fish, the rock and roll kind of party animal vibe, you know. But it was, um, but I mean, you know, I, I won't, I mean, no bones about it and I've never shied away from it. You know, I did become a bit of an asshole at that time. You know, I mean, it went to my head, you know, and it was hard, you know, controlling your ego. I mean, to, to be suddenly thrown into that position where everybody wanted to know you and everybody's turning around and saying you're great. We thought you were a dickhead three years ago, right? And then being in that and having all those accolades thrown at you, it's like, well, yeah, I'm great. I'm brilliant. You know, da, 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 do this for me, do that. That lasted for a while, for about maybe a period of three months or so, six months max. But I'm lucky I had good people around me that turned around and were, they weren't scared to turn around and say, you're actually being a dickhead, right? And... You know, and when those people, I respected those people enough to listen to them, you know, and that's what kind of got me through it. But then again, when it moved into 1987, as I said, the gang mentality go, it was every, it seemed to be every man for himself. Everybody was doing deals and things, and, you know, and I was expected to carry on being fish, you know, and it's like, well, I'd like my life back as well. And by that point, in 1987, I got married, and, and that changed the whole ballgame, you know. Yeah, well, as I said at the start, that, um, 1988 was the first interview when it was, when it was over with Marion, and you were openly sort of discussing with me about your uh, possible future, it felt like. like. You were talking about maybe going to college to study directing, I think. There was something yeah. in there. You were, you were talking about how you were writing a... or you wanting to write a screenplay. I don't know if you were writing already there, but you were obviously writing short stories and other things and your lyrics and so on. Um, how freeing was that at that period? And how worried were you at that period about your future? Because that refers to me when I visited you, that there was a sense of worry about my future there. I knew my career was over. It was like, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? It felt like I was going down Aylesbury again. You know, it felt like leaving the machine. It was the machine was hurting me. You know, I mean, the machine had no, had no respect for what, what I was as a person, you know, as a human being, you know, I was just somebody that was the lead singer in a band that made a lot shitload of money that a lot of people made a lot of money from, right? I mean, yeah, you know, I think in the last year I was in the band, the manager made four and a half times more than I did, right? 
because it was like he was on, that's why we were on the road all the time, because he was sitting there on 20% of what we were making live, right? After certain costs, right? But putting that all together, that's why we were just on the road too much. And even I had people like Morris Jones, who was a major promoter in the, the, in the UK, and he just said, you guys are over touring. You're playing too many shows, right? And because the manager was making so much money, but he knew his hat was on a shugly peg, as they say in Scotland. He knew that I was looking at him going, this isn't right, right? And that was what all transpired in 1987. It was a culmination of all those different areas that I was unhappy with. And at the, you know, at the same time, I think I kind of realised that I was going to lose my marriage. I could have probably lost my life because if I lost my marriage, I'd be floating around on my own again. And, you know, what was going to happen was I just ended up getting caught up in that vicious circle, you know, where, I mean, I would have probably turned into like, you know, exactly what I wrote about in Incommunicado, you know, and, um, and I had to, I had to get out. And, I, and when I left the band and I moved to Scotland and moved it into this place, it was so, the, the sense of freedom was huge, but there was also a palpable sense of excitement because it's like, what are we going to do now? I could do anything I wanted to do. And um, and I had the, the basics of uh, the Vigil album. I had good guys around me like Mickey Simmons and Robin Bolt, you know, and Frank Usher. And, um, you know, I had this place up here where everybody stayed. So there was a little set sense of community about it. So the kind of gang mentality came back into my life again. You know, it was like, although with I the, was... With the creative freedom, didn't it? It came back with a yeah, different yeah. creative freedom. Because you, yeah. ne- you didn't have the other guys saying, no, we can, we don't, you know, we don't want you to go so long on this lyric or we don't want the uh mm. you, you know and then you could actually take uh but, but by vigil but by vigil time i'm writing songs that make you like family business right big wedge gentlemen's excuse me state of mind you know they weren't big long prog songs you know i was i was yeah and this was the thing if you actually look at it if you look at clutching at straws clutching at straws at incommunicado at sugar mice Warm Wet Circles, if we'd done it properly, could have been an absolutely brilliant song, you know. But we were starting to write songs, like proper songs. But they were, they were complicated arrangements, but they were proper songs. And that's what I wanted to do. And in 1988, when I left the band, the band was still writing slabs of music. They weren't writing songs. They were just joining bits together. And I didn't want to do that anymore, you know. I wanted to get involved, properly involved in song structures. And they were throwing bits of music at me, which is, was basically like, you know, can you write a lyric over that? And it's like, well, actually, I've written this lyric and this is what this lyric does. And this is kind of how I hear it. Oh, well, we don't hear it like that. We hear this. And they were just joining bits together. And it was summed up by the fact that, like, you know, in 1988, it was Bob Ezrin who was going to be the producer of the next album. I was sent down to meet him because the band had complained that I wasn't writing anything that was any decent. And I showed my lyric to Bob Ezrin. He went, this is great. And he said, go away and write a, he said, go away and write a song about drinking. He said, again, you know, it was the first drinker, right? Go and write a drinking song. You know, you're supposed to be getting off of your head. Said, go write a drinking song. And I went away and wrote The Company, right? And then I took the, you know, the company. I sat down with Mark Kelly to try and write, and he couldn't get it together. A simple song, he couldn't work out how he put it together, right? And I sat with Mickey Simmons, and we wrote it in an afternoon. And But that was uh, that was the changes, and and... And Bob Ezrin said, Bob Ezrin went down to see the band and said, okay, play me what you got. And he said, these aren't songs. He said, this is just a bunch of bits, right? And I'm outside the studio listening to him going, this is what I've been saying for the last six months, you know? It's just bits that they join together, hammer them together like round pegs and square holes, you know? 
you know, well, it's, as long as it's 20 minutes long, they'll love it because it's got Marillion written on it. And after that, I see no more about that. You know, but I mean, yeah. I went in with Mickey Simmons and went into songwriting, right? And there's very few times in my career where I've actually sat down and wrote, wrote written, you know, big long songs. Velchmelts has got long songs in it and Rose of Damascus, but it's a sculpted song. It's it's properly arranged and, you know, it's got a story to, it's got the dynamic, you know, which is what I wanted to do. And I think that's why I'm the 1988. The band didn't trust me anymore, you know? I mean, I've, I've been in a situation in, in, in my life, as you know, I presented on MTV, and a lot of my life is defined by, ah, he's the guy from MTV, where I was at MTV for seven years. You know, this is comparable. You're, you're in Meridian for about the same period. The, and I always feel like, wow, how can they define my life from seven years out of 62? Yeah, well, that's in what a similar got. way. I hate it. Yeah, I hate it. You know, I, you know, I appreciate it. I love what I did with Marillion, but you know, I'm fish now. You know, and it's like, I mean, even now, I mean, he's still in the press. Former Marillion singer fish. I mean, for God's sake, you know, I left the band in 1988, right? And it's like, you know, I've done, I don't even know how many albums. I've done 10, 10 solo, 12 yeah. solo albums, like it is now. You know. But it's still former, but you know, that happens, you know, and Kaylee, yeah. Kaylee still listen to, I mean, you know, I hate when I'm doing, you know, radio interviews and it's like, you know, we've got Fish promoting his new album, Velshmills, here's Fish, ding, 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 Kaylee, you know, and just go, why, you know, but you know, fair you enough. Can why, though, can't you? I mean, I can see why I'm, I'm defined as, you know, something I did and left. I don't know, 30 years ago, 20, you know, almost 30 years ago. I can see why I can be defined in that way for the people that used to watch me back then. And I can see why that you're defined for that. But I know full well, like me, what I do today, hardly anyone knows, knows about, yeah. and it's my total passion. And yeah. I can totally understand and be totally with you that what your passion has been throughout your life are words, and you have taken that, it's just been a, pro a process, really. Yeah. And, and Meridian was part of that process, but it was the most successful part of that process. So for people that, you know, other people, it's what, what defines you. But it, yeah, it I mean, doesn't yeah, define yeah. you. So, the, the, the bottom line is Meridian was just another bunch of musicians that I worked with, you know? And yeah, I mean, we were successful, but that had a lot to do with the juggernaut that was EMI. I mean, Kaylee would never have been a hit single without EMI without them pulling all the stops and, and buying this and buying that and da-da-da. I mean, I've written songs that I consider, you know, equally as good as Kaylee, but they've never been heard, you know, because they never got played on radio because we never had, I never had, I mean, and when I had my, almost my numbers, right, since I've really gone solo, since I went independent, you know, I never had the backup. I never had the machine. I didn't have the finances. I didn't have the resources to really push those singles, right? And, you know, but, you know, when I die, there's still great, great songs, you know? I mean, nothing's going to take that away from them, and I'm quite happy with that. But and my whole life changed. I mean, like I said, money did not drive me, right? It never drove me, right? And it was never, you know, the addiction to fame. You know, I didn't really like being famous. I, I felt a lot of time it was an intrusion. I mean, I've always said that, you know, being famous... It can get, get you a table at the best restaurant, but you can be guaranteed there's going to be a lot more waiters hanging about waiting on tips, right? And um, and that's where it goes. And like now, I mean, you know, Veldschmerz has sold about 15,000, 17,000 albums. 
which for an independent label is great. It's respectable. I yeah. don't have a distribution deal. We sell it from here. So everything we make, my wife, my wife and I deal with the whole company thing here. And, you know, on a Monday, you know, we will wake up and there will be 200 orders waiting to be fulfilled that came generated through the Fish and Friday program that I do in Facebook for free. Even though people say, you should sell this. And it's like, I don't want it because I'm enjoying doing it. And I'm giving something to people and making them happy right, that are sitting on their own in houses, right? So I'm not going to charge them for that. It's like, I can do it. It makes me feel happy, makes them feel happy. And that was kind of like one of the reasons. That's the same person that left Marillion, right? And it was, um, you know, he had gone on stage at the Ahoy in Rotterdam. And the only time you ever saw the venue was at the sound check. And then after that, when you walked out, there was two super trippers in your eye. You could see the first four meters of fans when somebody shouted out something from the front and you did, did a snappy, funny answer, the people at the back only heard one side of the joke, right? And it was, um, and then you come off stage and then you, you sit, you've got 100 people backstage that you're paying for their canopies and their champagne and, and everything like that. And you don't even know who they are, right? And you're not being asked, oh, this is so-and-so, the head of such and such. It's like, you know what? I've just come off stage and I don't really want to talk to anybody and I'd rather be my mates or I'd rather go down the road and go in a bar, right? And that was what makes me happy. Yeah. And so when I left Marillion, I got all that back. And, you know, it's, it's a lot. You know, the first couple of years we were doing, I'm still doing big gigs. But now, you know, I'm really happy with where I'm. I don't have, I've got a bloody Skoda out in the front. You know, I don't have a Lamborghini. I don't have a holiday home. I don't have a, a, a mansion in, in, in the Loire Valley or whatever. You know, I don't have a yacht. You know, the... the the thing we spend most of our money on is the garden or season tickets for a Berlin football club, right? And that's what my wife and I have got really simple tastes, you know? We, I mean, although it's lockdown, I mean, you know, even when it wasn't lockdown, we might go out to a restaurant maybe once, twice a month, maybe, you know? And, you know, I go on Easter Road. I, I walk about with no security guards. You know, we don't have, you know, I don't have that hassle. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, just a punter. You know, and that's what I like. And, you know, like I said, I mean, with the albums we sell, it's, it's like we make more money off them than, than we'd ever make off, off, off an EMI deal where, you know, I'm getting paid 10 pence a CD or whatever it was, you know. And it's like, you know, it's, it, it's under my control and I can do what I want and I like it. And I, I don't have, I, I don't have the pressures of having to do things i'm doing this for you because i want to do it because it's fun i don't feel like it's a big thing about promoting an album i'm having a discussion and a conversation with you you know one thing's really interesting because when we when we talked the other day with setting this up is that you know i mean velchmerz is is uh conceived as the last album or it's what it says it's on your the website. Last album. yeah okay and you're going to be hopefully covid permitting <laughs> you're going to go have a tour in some way, and that will probably be your last tour. How do you feel at this moment in time of sort of closing that area of your life down? Or are you, is that just like, well, you might do a bit more, or is that really the close down? Is that for, for you the, 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 the end of that creative period of your life? It's, I mean, I've got... I've got the vid I've got Vigil and Internal XL, my first two albums. I've got to remaster them and we've got to put a, a couple of really good deluxe box sets together. Redoing 13 Star, I've got a live album coming out, so I've got that to do. Okay. But I'm not writing any more music. You know? I mean that's it. I mean I, I felt I made the decision in 2015, you know, I had 
2015, I was dealing with a bad spine problem. Uh, I had a, a terrible rotator cuff uh, injury and that I picked up when I was diving in Cuba. And um, getting on a dive boat in a storm, down at Guantanamo Bay, boat went up and, it, and I was getting on the boat. When I put my arm on the ladder just as the boat went up about a metre and a half and I either hung on to that and I, my tanks and everything were on the boat, right? And I had my, 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 my fins were off and I was in a, in, a, in a storm. And the boat went up and it ripped my entire, it tore my muscle in about three places up there, right? Luckily, it was my last dive then in Santiago del Cuba. And it was, um, so, you know, I had all that in 215. And I went, you know what? I didn't face the consequences, which I loved as an album. I loved writing it. And I loved the research. I loved the words. And I got the high wood in particular, you know, to design the high wood, right, lyrically and as a story and to make it all clip. It was like writing a movie, right? And I've always wanted to write screenplays, as we discussed, you know, way back in AA. I've always been into movies. I should have been, I should have done more acting, but I couldn't act because I wasn't allowed to because I was in a band whose manager was earning a fucking shitload of money off us touring, right? And if I did a movie and went on a set for two two months, what did the band do? So we're going on the road. You can't do the movie, right? And I auditioned for a lot of great films back then, right? And and screenplays were always, you know, always part of the writing. It's always been you know, just a, basically a, a, a very complicated lyric, right? And, um, you know, it's still, you know, anyway, but I mean... But if you're not going to write songs... But, ben, if, but in 2015, I, I went as an end game, and I've got one more, I felt I've got one more great album. I didn't want to f- finish on a dud firework. I wanted to leave my solo career in the same way as I left Marillion with the best album that I've made, Right. And I've done that with Velchmerz, right? It's Velchmerz I love as an album. I can listen to Velchmerz and I just go like, this is fucking great, right? I love it, right? But that's it, you know? I don't want to do what Emerson Link Palmer did with Love Beach or like some other bands have done, you know, where it's like, oh, well, you know, we'll just scrape the last part of the, what we can get out of the fans. I went, no, that's it. And again, there's a feeling of exhilaration in the same way as when I left Marillion, there's a sense of exhilaration because it's like, I'm doing this, you know, like, blah, blah. and COVID, COVID has thrown a toolbox into the works, you know, because, you know, I should have been out last year doing the Welshmerz tour. This year, at the end of this year, I should have been starting my farewell tour. 2022, it was all going to end, right? Now, I don't even think I'm going to be doing gigs this year. I can't see them happening. In, in all reality, I am... Um, mentally prepared, fully mentally prepared for everything to get taken in a field and shot in the head, right? And, you know, in 2022, most of the venues are booked that I really want to play. So 2023 will be the farewell tour, but I don't know if that will happen. So, I mean, it has been, you know, I'm having, I'm having to, to reset myself in so many ways. You know? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, and the, you know, finally, this sort of the greatest passion, it seems, you know, or one of the greatest passions, I've, uh, uh, I'm no detriment to the relationships you've had in your life and your wife now, one of the greatest passions in your life has been music. Clearly, you know, an amazing passion that, that spans practically all your life, you know, from the music you heard as a, as a child to the music you made through all your incarnations to the last album, Belchmerz. And now that is coming to an end 
where is where will you put your passion where will that go because somehow you need an outlet don't you that has to have an outlet whatever it is could be anything it doesn't have to be what uh, it is it's raining it's yeah. rain and screenplay rain it's rain screenplays and you know it's, it's like i want to write i want i want to there's an autobiography that's obvious but i don't think it's going to be a straightforward autobiography i think it's going to be more a series of memoirs you know and um and there's also creative writing. That, you know, I've got a folder down there with ideas that I've been sketched out or typed out, you know, over the years. That I've never put, I found it the other day when I was cleaning out the controller. I'm like, fuck, I forgot about that. And um, and there's ideas to do that. But, I mean, I can play about with it. But music is not the passion in my life now. I don't – I listen to music, and it can still move me. But I don't – I'm not one of these people that can uh, – scour spotify for the latest thing or whatever it bores me now i think the music business has changed the music business is not the same music business that i joined i mean i remember robin bolt said to me one time he said the music business he said it used to be uh capital m small b right and now it's small m capital b right and that's the change that i don't like you know i, I don't like you know it's all numbers now and it's it's not albums anymore it's tracks it's downloads it's streams and i, I write albums Veltschmerz is an album right i don't go out i can't go out and just write a track i've got to write an album you know and i don't want to write tracks you know and um and you know and i've, I've just fallen out of love with it it's just changed so much you know that the, the business has just taken over the, the enjoyment you know and you know, and I'm not naive and I'm not being stupid. You know, like, I mean, I've always understood that, you know, there's always been the business in the, in the music, you know, but it dominates it now, you know. And I think the demands, you know, I mean, I think and, and being a celebrity now, I mean, being a celebrity back in, in the mid 1980s, I mean, now, I mean, the fish that existed in 1985, I would be victim of cancel culture now, right? And, you know, I wouldn't get away with what I, what I used to do back in the mid-80s, you know. And I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be a fucking celebrity, you know. And it's, um, I don't, and I like my private life. My wife and I are really close. She's my soulmate. And, you know, and I don't want to be away from her. You know, I mean, if, if I'm doing a farewell tour, you know, I want my wife on the road every day, you know. And it's, um, and we're going to be able to do that. And, you know, and I want to have fun. I mean, when I do my farewell tour, you know, everybody I've talked to, it's like when I do my farewell to, what I'd like to play is two nights in a venue that I really love, that I've, I've, I've loved over the years, right? Two nights, two different sets, not on a tour bus, drive to the drive to the venues, drive to, the, you know, stay in a hotel, meet up with friends in the, the various cities, have a laugh, enjoy it, and just have a shitload of fun and say goodbye that way. In the future, if I want to go out and play, I'm not, I don't want to go out with an electric band. I mean, I might do a gig with a band, but not a tour, you know? But, I mean, I, I don't think I'll do festivals or whatever because it's, it's too much a faff to get everybody together. But, I mean, I could go, what I could do is if I really want to get the, the, to get the buzz, is go out what I did on the Fish Hits Club tour, which was one of my favourite tours that I ever did, which was myself, a guitarist and a keyboard player, and just going out and playing small places and just having a little shitload of fun, you know, having lunch in a, in a place. I saw more of Germany on the Fishheads Club tour than I saw in all the years previous, right? And, you know, and if I want to go out, I could go out and spend two weeks, maybe two weeks, three weeks, 
And I could make enough money to keep myself going for the year if I needed to go out, if I wanted the buzz. Otherwise, I prefer to be in my garden. I prefer to be here writing and working with people and, and doing something else. I need, you know, this is an, another stage in my life. You know, this is yeah. the next stage in my life now. I think that's brilliant. And I'll tell you what, when you come to Germany, I'm going to come and visit you and I'm going to pay for the canopies. <laughs> I'm going to pay for the alcohol for the night yeah. out to pay you back for that brilliant weekend in 1995. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Well, that brings me to the end of this two-part podcast interview with Fish, one of Pop's history makers. Hope you enjoyed it and keep a lookout for more interviews on Pop, the history makers, with me, Steve Blame. (laughs) 